0: Good morning. We're going to be in God's Word today. And as Eugene read that, there's a part of me, as I studied this, le- this portion of Scripture, I'm like, why did Luke include this? Honestly, as I'm studying it, there's a lot in it. It speaks to us today. But I was like, really? This could have been left out. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt that way when you're reading Scripture, but that is something that comes to mind. And I just want to be honest about it sometimes, because some things kind of feel like, uh, what was the point? But as I studied, as I realized God's word, every single portion of it matters, and it was written so we could know our God better and so we could grow in righteousness and understanding of grace, I started to come to the conclusion that maybe this speaks to us right now a little bit more than I first thought when I read it. We're continuing in this letter, the book of Acts, and I have named this sermon today The Truth Hurts. Now, I did not name it that because... A certain quarterback for the Eagles' last name is Hurts, okay? The reality is that sometimes when we hear the truth, we don't like it. I know I don't always like it. And when I asked that question earlier on in the service about have you ever had the word of God contradict you and you didn't like it, but eventually you changed your mind, I asked that question out of the understanding that that is kind of a marker of a believer, not that we just listen to a pastor or we just listen to some guy on a podcast, but does the actual word of God change us? Can it contradict us? Can it actually allow us to then realize, man, I maybe am thinking about this all wrong because I ought to think of it the way God thinks of it. Last week, we studied God, the Holy Spirit, doing miraculous things through Paul and even some of his own garments who were symbols of God's healing power. Today, we're going to see something much more natural, what people do when they are told the truth but don't want to do anything with it. As a Christian, I have something to do, and I don't know that we always kind of think of it this way. I think some people, when they think of Christianity, they think, well, if I, all I have to do is believe. And then once I believe, I'm good, I'm set. But that's not all that Christianity is. Once we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, we then have something to do. And that thing that we get to do today is something we ought to strive for as the Holy Spirit resides in us if we've trusted Jesus. So when we follow Jesus for the right reasons, we are striving for Christ-likeness, God's glory, and the gospel being spread. We are striving for Christ's likeness. God's glory, and the gospel being spread. And those three things don't happen without a willingness to deal with the difficult circumstances and the truth of God, even when it contradicts what we have always believed or what we want to believe. So here we go, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Anyone think of Darth Vader with that word? About that time where we left off last week, Paul was going to head to Jerusalem once again and had gone through Macedonia and Achaia. Miraculous things had been done by God through Paul, and a great disturbance arose about the way. The way, which was this new movement of Christians, was originally known as the way, and the disturbance was pretty consistent in what we read in the book of Acts, where the gospel is being spread and shared by these followers of Jesus and apostles, things were getting dicey and difficult, and where the gospel is proclaimed, opposition tends to present itself. Where the gospel is proclaimed, opposition tends to present itself. So now I'm going to read this pretty long portion of scripture, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who was worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So there's this longer passage that we read. We're not gonna unpack every single word, but this is explaining what Paul's preaching of the gospel of grace was doing. Enter into Demetrius into the story, a silversmith who was not happy about Paul's preaching, but it wasn't necessarily because of any strong convictions that he had about worship of a God. It was that his bottom line was being affected by what Paul was saying. Paul had pointed to the grace of God found in the person and work of Jesus and to repent and turn from any idols that anyone was worshiping. And for Demetrius... He was profiting from the idol worship that so many had in Ephesus in this time by essentially creating many little statues of Artemis. Christianity, I don't know, I I would assume we probably can all agree on this. Christianity tends to offend our American dream idea of comfort, convenience, and celebrity because following Jesus can be uncomfortable, inconvenient, and humbling. Let me say that again. Following Jesus can be uncomfortable, inconvenient, and humbling. Who's in? <laughs> and yet, Jesus is worth it. Because if following him means, because when we follow him, it means that our priorities get turned upside down. For Demetrius, he correctly accused Paul of preaching against idolatry which Paul did all the time. And Demetrius made known the economic consequences that would happen because of Paul's preaching in Ephesus. The city in Ephesus was in decline and was was a worshiping hub for the goddess Artemis where her temple resided. And many craftsmen would profit from creating these miniature statues that people would purchase out of their loyalty to Artemis and use as a focus of worship. God was drawing people to himself all throughout Ephesus in Paul's ministry, and so Demetrius and others were beginning to revolt against this change in the economic climate of Ephesus. I do love that Demetrius speaking against Paul does a pretty good job of communicating exactly what Paul was saying and doing. Let me show you. He says, you see that Paul is leading people astray. That's totally true. He's leading people astray from idolatry and towards worship of the true God through the message of the gospel. And Demetrius also pointed out that it wasn't just in Ephesus that Paul's message had created the disruption, but all over the province of Asia, which was also true. Then Demetrius claims that Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Uh, Yeah, he's hella right. As Paul so famously said to those in in Acts 17, to the church or to the people in Athens in Areopagus, he says this, Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul was consistently pointing out God's sovereignty and omnipotence. And he is not a God that is created or in need of creation's help in any way. See, if you know him, it's not because he needs you, church. If you know him, it's because he loves you. And he decided to draw you to himself. And what a good God that we worship and we play drums for. Amen? And lastly, Demetrius accused Paul of speaking in such a way that the goddess Artemis would be discredited and lose her divine majesty. Here's the thing about God that most cannot get their minds around or want to accept. Now I'm gonna quote the great theologian Steve Rogers known as Captain America in Avengers 1. There is only one God, ma'am, and I don't think she or he dresses like that. Here's the thing about God. He is dressed in a royal robe. He reigns and he rules in the kingdom of God forever and ever. Amen. And he is not a statue. Demetrius used two examples of what keeps people from worship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Demetrius was basically writing a sermon. If he knew it or not, you just had to change his negative to positive. Here is the things that stop people from following Jesus. The change of our lifestyle and security. In this case, it was economics and the hit to our pride. To believe in Christ means they would have to turn their backs on worship of any other God. And in this case, it was Artemis. And for us today, it means we turn our backs on all the other things that we've believed in or worship. In fact, for a very long time, the tradition was that when you would get baptized, when you go into, we have what looks like a barbecue, but when you would go into a baptistry to be baptized, They would ask you your confession about Jesus, but before you would share your confession of who Jesus was, you would actually talk about all the things that you were now denying, all the idol worship, all the former religion that maybe you had. And then you would confess your allegiance to Christ. But first you would denounce the religions and idols that you worshipped prior to this new decision to follow him. Following Christ, church, is costly. It means you give up stuff that once was ultimate in your life because idolatry isn't just having little statues. Idolatry is making anything above Jesus Christ in your life. So while many of our idols seem justified, some of them are very subtle, and some of them just seem like, well, it's, what's wrong with loving that? There's nothing wrong with loving your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends. All of those things, though, were created by a creator who knew you in your mother's womb and loves you. And so this idolatry was what was keeping many from believing Paul's message. And Demetrius was opposing Paul by not really saying anything that was incorrect, He was just making normal the fact that idolatry was culturally acceptable by those in Ephesus, if it were true or not. It was the way of life that everyone was comfortable with and learned how to prosper from. I wonder if there are things today, in culture today, that are similar. I wonder if we culturally accept things that are not what God wants for us, but we accept it because the masses tell us that we must accept it. Otherwise, we're bigoted or racist. Or we're an enemy. And the crowd heard the speech from Demetrius. And they reacted. And look at how they react. When they heard this, verse 28, they were furious and began shouting, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. The crowd of Ephesians began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This feels like such a mob mentality. This is probably just for Liz and I, but I kept thinking Donna Martin graduates. Okay, thank you. Gen X. By telling the truth, Demetrius was saying these things to discredit Paul, but he was telling the truth, and people were then challenging, or they were responding with, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, they were picking up what Demetrius was putting down, and it began a riot. Verse 29. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Arciarchus. I don't know how to say that. Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together, the theater where many different things would be talked about Now, we have a riot brought on by Demetrius, attempting to discredit Paul and his message, and people's reaction is to seize both of these companions of Paul. Verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to go into the theater. Now, Paul had a sense of responsibility and maybe he believed that he would not be harmed or possibly and probably he did not care about the risk as long as the gospel was being preached. But those who understood the volatile nature of the situation were protecting Paul from showing himself to this mob. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. This is a great example of mob mentality and how a lot of people all being caught up in the emotion of a riot can end up being there for no other reason than a commotion that they want to know about, they don't want FOMO. Verse 33. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two more hours, Donna, Martin, Grant, no, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the people in this passage, they can get a little confusing as we read this, but what I believed happened was this, that there was a mob full of Ephesians and Jews They were congregating at the theater, and the Jews were pushing Alexander up to speak on behalf of the Jews. But when the Ephesians saw that Alexander was a Jew, they began to protest by continuing to chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So who's Alexander? We don't know. We don't know for sure. But I'm going to speculate what most commentators speculate about who Alexander is. See, there is a guy named Alexander written about by Paul to Timothy. Now, what church does Timothy eventually pastor? Ephesus. And he writes in both of his letters, First and Second Timothy. And why is this important? Because of how Paul name drops Alexander. Here's what he says in First Timothy chapter 1, 18 through 20. Paul's writing to Timothy an encouragement, what it means to be a pastor, what it means to develop elders, what it means to be a, a loving husband, and to... Help your family and serve them. And he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. If I got up here and started naming names, you all would be quite upset. Let's be real about this. And this is a letter written by Paul to Timothy. This is personal, this is an encouraging letter, but this is a letter that ends up getting read throughout the church in Ephesus as Timothy has it, and eventually it comes into scripture. He's not saying nice things about Alexander. But then he says in 2 Timothy, this is later on, this is what's considered the last letter that Paul writes, and he writes to Timothy, and then he says, Alexander the metal worker. Same Alexander? We don't know for sure. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. Alexander did me dirty, Tim. And the Lord will repay him for what he has done. Woo! You too should be on guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So assuming this is the same Alexander in both letters, which it probably is, and assuming it's the same Alexander that's spoken about here in the book of Acts while Paul is in Ephesus where Timothy eventually becomes the pastor, Alexander is an opponent of Paul and caused him great harm, the text says. We don't know for sure, but I like this hypothetical possibility from this commentator that kind of put this all together. Commentator said it this way, then his history would be something like this. Alexander was an influential Jewish metalworker in Ephesus. When the missionaries came to town, Alexander, the coppersmith, got to know them and was seemingly open to the gospel. That's important. When the unrest broke out over Artemis' sales, Alexander was chosen as a natural liaison between the silversmiths and the target of their ire. Later, Alexander showed his true colors in the church, and it became apparent that he and Hymenaeus were living for themselves, not for Christ. Paul warned Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus, about the situation. Later still, Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and Paul rused the fact that Alexander, the coppersmith, had continued to damage the cause of Christ and had become a personal enemy, possibly Alexander had used his influence and financial standing to prejudice the Roman authorities against Paul. Whatever the case, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. Now that's speculation. I don't like to teach speculation, but we don't have any other context for Alexander. And the thing that I start to realize about this Alexander, and I know we're not teaching first or second Timothy. But the thing that I start to realize about this is that there is a thing that we do where we just assume, well, they prayed a prayer or they were baptized, and then for whatever reason, we think, oh, well, we should just let them lead the church. And there's something about attesting. There's something about being a part of a community. There's something about being engaged with one another that we see throughout scripture. It's this consistent thread of, you know how I know many of you have grown? Because we've done life together. And the other weird thing about that is we don't always grow at the same pace. There's people that I could come up with and I could name drop and say, hey, that person's grown really fast. Well, the reality is maybe they had a lot of place that they needed to grow. And some of us maybe don't grow as fast. But we all ought to be people that are striving for Christ-likeness as we follow Jesus because we've already made a commitment to him. We all ought to be people that are striving for God's glory to not make things about us but to make things about Jesus. We all should be people, and hear me, we all should be people that care about spreading the gospel. Yesterday, I, uh, I performed a gravesite uh, memorial for Mike's dad, Mickey, and we'll be having a larger one here next week, next Saturday. But as we did it, and it was myself and the Wilburns who led worship, and and. Uh, uh, Mike and his family one of the things I noticed about Mickey was and as I shared about Mickey was that he wasn't a type of person that would necessarily feel comfortable coming up here like his son does but Mickey was someone that was always supporting what he thought was the work of spreading the gospel not just with money but with his time with with his whole being because he wanted to make sure that other people heard the gospel And church, this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. We ought not keep it to ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, the principal preacher, said, you're either a missionary or you're an imposter. And that sounds rough. And that doesn't mean go on to the street corner. That doesn't mean feel guilty about not talking about Jesus every chance you get. What that means is, do you want the gospel to be spread do you want it to be furthered? Are there people in your life that you care about that you desperately want to see know Jesus? There are times I don't, if I'm honest. There are times that I am thinking totally inward and I'm not thinking about the care of the reality that God could save people in and around me and I have to repent pretty often. And if I'm doing that and I'm the one up here and I'm the pastor, one of the pastors of the church, then my guess is that maybe you're in a similar place. And so we ought to be a people that strive as we follow Jesus for Christ-likeness to put into practice what he says, to obey him. We ought to be people that want all the glory to go back to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we ought to be people that want to see the gospel spread. Rant over for now. Now, we're going to enter in another person into this text. It's the city clerk. He's different. It's not Alexander. It's a different person. Here's what it says. Acts 19.35. The city clerk now quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? Okay, real quick. City clerk comes in, who was the chief administrator of the city between the town assembly and the Roman officials. He's pointing out the history of Ephesus. And the worship of Artemis, which the mention of falling from heaven could be a reference and probably is a reference to meteorites that had fallen from space, which often were attributed to worship towards Artemis. Verse 36. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, the city clerk says, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed Our goddess, the city clerk is attempting to calm and warn the crowd, check it with logic and facts, (laughs) which from what we can tell, because we already read it, actually works, which seems like a miracle in and of itself based on how mobs tend to act now, you know what I'm saying? But I'd also point out that the city clerk was defending the fact that these Christians we're not doing anything against the Roman Empire. They weren't doing anything against the law. So these silversmiths were then creating or being a part of creating a riot was not necessarily justified by the Roman government. And so those who were there disturbing the peace should probably stop. Verse 38, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. And there are pro-councils. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. This is like you and I getting in a theological conversation and you calling the governor. I'm going to leave that there. Verse 40. As it is, we are in danger... Of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he'd said this, Luke writes, he, the city clerk, dismissed the assembly. This is kind of why I'm like, what? why do you why do you include this? Like it was kind of like it was all excitable, and then there was this abrupt, abrupt, I mean, ending to what seemed to escalate really quickly. Artemis is the greatest of the Ephesians. But it never got too out of control that a truthful and logical word could not help the people calm down and disperse. What is interesting to me about the story is that it actually happened, and it was documented by Luke, and it could have gone much worse, but nothing in it that the Christians were accused of or did was technically wrong. I wonder if that's our problem now, church. I wonder if we're so conflict-averse that standing up for our faith seems too aggressive, that we lose too much. We'd be looked at possibly as unintelligent because we believe in a God that not everyone can see. Or we'd be grouped in with some fringe, ridiculous people who claim Jesus as their Lord, but they actually are bigots and racists. And give Christ and his followers a really bad name. Maybe it's not even standing up for our faith that's the struggle. I don't get a lot of deny Christ or die here in 2023 in the Silicon Valley. But perhaps it's giving up our own idols. And making Christ the focal point of our worship. And the focal point of our priorities. Maybe it's not defending the faith as much as it is just being an ambassador for Christ. And not hiding our Sunday activities or being afraid to pray for people or share what God has taught us about him. I don't know if the pandemic did this, but it definitely magnified the, the fact that Christianity tends for some to really just be for those who only want to make Jesus something that's convenient for them. When a hard time has fallen on them or there is a guilty feeling because of something perhaps that we have done that feels immoral, we then give Jesus some time. We might give a little bit of time to him. We might even attend church for a little while until people in said church make us mad. The problem with this caricature of this epidemic of cultural Christianity, because that's what I'm making fun of, is it isn't all the way that God in his word points to a love for God and a love for our neighbor. Instead, we, they, us, give Jesus just enough to make us feel better, but the God who knows our hearts gifts us his very spirit. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in you. That's insane. We do not worship a God who says, hey, do better. We worship a God who says, I'll come and do it with you. And the Holy Spirit helps us grow. Not like Neo in the original Matrix. I know Kung Fu, that's not how this works. We grow through reading this and doing it. We grow from reading it in the context in which it's written and going, Lord, what does that mean for me in 2023? Let me get good people around me in the church who can love me and give me their ideas. And guess what? Those people aren't sovereign. I'm not sovereign. But God's word is, and we can dive into it. A lot of you who are in a community group, just a few weeks ago, you guys did the parable of the sower. And then this past week, you did one that was even harder, right? Let's be honest. But the parable of the sower, Jesus does such a great job as he talks about the seed being spread, and it lands on different soils. Those are souls. As it lands on different soils, some people hear it, and they get really excited about it, and then they stop being excited about it. And for some, they the sun just scorches it right away or the birds come and they eat up the seed. But what I love about that passage is Jesus unpacks it himself later on in the passage and he talks about who the sower is, he talks about what the seed is, he talks about all of these things. And the reality is even as I preach this message, we all hear it a little bit differently because we're all in a different place in our spiritual journey. That's why we have different takeaways. Not all our takeaways are just the the slides that I put up there, hopefully. Hopefully we're listening between the lines of what's being said. Hopefully we're looking at scripture from a totality of what we know about God. And the reality is, and Mike said it last week, God is infinite. So no matter how much we try to know him, there's still so much more to know about him. And that is the gift of being a Christian. We get to continue to know God better. So he grows us through his word. He grows us through the hard stuff by relying on him and coming to the word in humility, saying, Lord, please change me. And the danger that we probably tend to flee from isn't one that we should be fleeing from because it's in those circumstances of conflict and even trials that God uses to conform us into his image and to grow, to be Christ-like, to have life change, to be sanctified. And sanctification is not just a feature of Christianity, that only some experience who are super holy. Sanctification, spiritual growth, Christ-likeness is what the Holy Spirit does in those who by grace through faith have received Jesus. There are a lot of quotes that I hear that aren't biblical. God only helps those that help themselves. Not true. Cleanliness is next to Godliness. Not the Apostle Peter, that was Ben Franklin. But here's one that I think a lot of us believe. The safest place in the world is at the center of God's will. Uh, Tell that to Paul, who was threatened and beaten pretty consistently for his defense of the gospel. But let me give you one that sounds a lot closer to the truth of the word. God will take us where we are, but he won't let us stay. Where we are God will take us he doesn't I, if you come in here and you've been like I want nothing to do with Jesus but you came in here and by God's power all of a sudden that's changing he'll take you right where you are don't clean yourself up but the problem is that when we come to him we don't want him to change us and that's what he does And the conflict and the trials and the dangers and the persecution are not things we can avoid, let alone things we should attempt to avoid, because it is often in them that God grows and changes and conforms us into his image. So I'm going to end with this. Worship team, come on up. I don't know what idols you all have personally, I don't even know what idols you notice that you have. You probably are better at noticing other people's idols than your own if you're like me. But we all have some. We all have idols that are competing for our worship. We have idols that we place so much attention on that they become more important than Jesus. We all have idols that will never satisfy or give us what can only be found in an intimate and personal thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we turn from our idols, the biblical word is repent. As we repent from our idols, we have something to do. We don't really try hard not to sin when we come to Jesus. We follow Jesus. We obey Jesus. We get to know Jesus better through his word. We learn to identify and extend and show grace more and more. And as we do this, we follow Jesus because following Jesus means We strive for Christ's likeness, God's glory, and the gospel being spread. And when these are the things that we are focused on, there isn't the room for the idolatry that we tend to have. And as these things decrease, Jesus increases in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I uh, don't remember the verse where it says you have to close your eyes when you pray. So I'm going to keep my eyes open. Everyone can do that too if they want or keep them closed if that makes you feel uncomfortable. But Lord, I look at this group of people that you brought here today to hear your word. And they matter to you. Every single one. Even the people that don't want to talk to anyone and just came here or maybe, you know, aren't really comfortable connecting with one another. They matter to you, God. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that would also extend that to one another to be reminded that because each person here matters to you, that they should matter to us because we were bought at a price. And your spirit not only lives in us, it can dominate us. It fills us. It thrives in and through us by putting into practice what your word says written by your spirit. So, God, would we be a people that love one another? because that is the application to love you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.